Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog that you can check out, and that is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is Friday, January 7th, 2022. And we are now about 72 hours out from the national championship in the college football playoff. And I'm going to do something that I haven't done yet in any of my writing or in my podcasting, and that is a movie review. And today's movie review is going to be on National Champions, this film that came out in December. I think it came out on December 10th of 2021. And if you haven't heard about this movie, it is a film that is built around the uh, college football playoff and the national championship game. The basic plot is that the star quarterback for the Missouri Wolves, who are in the SEC, is leading a boycott of that national championship game. And the boycott just springs to life the Friday before the Monday game. So we're on that same time frame. He's the Heisman Trophy winner. He's the star quarterback. He's odds-on favorite to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. He's African-American. His name is LaMarcus James. And when he tries to build support for his boycott, all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries go ballistic. But I wanted to talk a little bit about this movie because as we transition into 2022, there's going to be a lot of discussion about athletes' rights and athletes' remedies that, that go along to protecting those rights. And in this movie, you have basically a wildcat strike. These are just a group of athletes who come together and the way they set up the plot, it happens on the fly 73 hours before the national championship game, which is another silly device. And I'll, again, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But the, the main theme here is that these athletes could cause enormous disruption if they exercise some form of self-help through an organized labor remedy. And that issue has come up again and again. And of course, we had in 2014, the Northwestern football team trying to unionize. And that really was neutralized by a decision of the National Labor Relations Board, even though the football players were successful at the regional level in establishing that they were indeed employees of their university, which is a precondition to being recognized under federal law as a group of workers that have the right to form a union. That self-help remedy is not a, a new issue. It's something that has been on the table for a long time. And as I'm watching this movie, it's being presented as this expose on big-time college sports. And there's this remedy out there that could be transformative, and it's presented as a novel option. But it's not. It's nothing new. And one of the things that was not included in the movie, and so much about this movie was interesting to me for what it didn't address, and what it didn't address could fill the Grand Canyon. But there was no suggestion that there had been this attempt to form a union under the NLRB in 2014 by Northwestern football players. And there wasn't any other discussion about prior attempts to form some kind of protest or a boycott or a union. Whatever form it takes, whether it's formally recognized under federal law or whether it is just a group of players getting together to collectively assert their rights, that issue didn't exist until 73 hours before this fictional national championship game. And as I mentioned in my first episode, I've maybe mentioned it a couple of times, my basketball mentor, uh, Dick DiVenzio, who was an academic All-American at Duke, Dick became a pioneer in the athletes' rights movement. And he was arguing in the 1980s that the best option for these athletes was to band together and to protest their treatment by the NCAA. He used as his inspirational model Cesar Chavez as much as Martin Luther King Jr. He, he viewed this really as a labor issue as much as a civil rights issue, and there's overlap there. Dick wrote a book in 1986 titled Rip Off You, 
the annual theft and exploitation of revenue-producing major college student athletes. And I did some work for Dick on, on that book. I did some content editing, and I also did some research for him. But more than those two things, I spent many, many an evening, late into the night, arguing back and forth with Dick. And these were friendly, lively debates. And I often took the, the devil's advocate's position. And one of the things that Dick was really pushing for was some kind of an organized approach. And he set up an organization very similar to what is now the National College Players Association, this outfit on the West Coast that's run by Ramochi Huma. But Dick, in his book, in Rip Off You, he talked about an organization like that that could be the conduit for essentially an organized labor response to the exploitation in college sports. And Dick actually tried to get some teams to protest. I don't know if you would call it a boycott, but to at least protest some of these meaningless bowl games. And I was with Dick and working with him and communicating with him when he was trying to get that done. And there are some big, big obstacles to overcome to try to make that happen. And it requires an enormous amount of foundational work and coordination and those various interests that have to be on the same page. It's a really daunting task. And this notion that there's going to be this wildcat strike that happened 73 hours before the uh, national championship game is silly. And if you, you know, watch the movie and you think that that's a realistic pathway to impose change and you're thinking that Bryce Young's going to announce his wildcat strike t today at 7 p.m., <laughs> don't hold your breath. These are really complex issues and they can't be reduced to a two-hour Hollywood interpretation of them or presentation of them or to a bunch of bumper sticker slogans that are strung together in a very poorly constructed plot. It's just not the way it works. And as I am talking about the forces really that are going to shape the athletes' remedy options, I'm going to talk more about what Dick tried to do in the 1980s and then what happened in this Northwestern case. But more importantly, what the NCAA and Power Five were trying to do in the Senate in 2019, 2020, and most of 2021 to get some federal law that labeled these revenue-producing athletes, these employees, as students and not employees. And that's a central component of that campaign. And it also has leaked into the NCAA Power Five's request for preemption of all state laws, because some of these preemption provisions and some of these bills that have been presented by Republican senators, NCAA-friendly Republican senators, are so broad that they would encompass, I believe, state labor laws and state workers' compensation laws, in addition to any other state law, like a name, image, and likeness law that went to directly addressing an NCAA compensation limit. And in the movie, when this quarterback, LaMarcus James, is making his speeches, there's a lot of speechifying in this movie. And that's really one of the primary plot devices that the writers and directors used to get the message out in these speeches to, in various forums. But in one of the early speeches when LaMarcus is making his announcement to the press and explaining why he is not going to play in the national championship game, he lays out three demands essentially. But the most important one is that the athletes be recognized as a collective bargaining unit, a union. And as we know from our discussion about that Northwestern case in 2014, under federal law, in order to have that standing and have the benefit of the protections of a union under federal law, you first have to establish that you're an employee. And that Regional Labor Relations Board held that the Northwestern football players, in applying a fact-based and, and a fact-intensive analysis about the true relationship, said, yes, of course they're employees. They met every element of the test that that court applied. And that is why when the NCAA and Power Five went offense starting in 2019, one of their primary planks in their hostile takeover of the regulatory market and their elimination of external regulatory threats, they wanted a federal declaration that these athletes could not be employees because if they get that, and we're going to talk more about how that would happen, they would have been very coy about how that would be implemented. 
They just want that principle there that these athletes are students, not employees. Back to the Walter Byer student-athlete fraud that he invented in the 1950s to avoid workers' compensation law. But that has really been where the NCAA has drawn the line in the sand as amateurism has gotten beaten up, and they've tried to disguise it in other ways. But the hill that the NCAA and Power Five will fight and die on is the status of these athletes as students rather than employees. And if you're really interested in this issue, the the rights of athletes and this labor issue and the true relationship between the revenue-producing athletes and the institutions, I really encourage you to listen to my episode 22. And that came out on May 16th of, of 2021. So it was part of my Pay for Play series. And it's titled Pay for Play, part, part six, 2014, the student athlete gets its day in court. And I went back and listened to that episode before I started this episode. And it's a great episode. I'm just going to say that. It's really good. So listen to it and you'll get a sense of what the issues are and how they're framed at the legal level. I think when the Power Five re-engage with Congress, that's going to be on the table. I mean, the antitrust immunity issue took a hit in the Austin case because that's what the NCAA and Power Five were asking for. They wanted judicial antitrust immunity to take federal courts completely off the off the table and out of the regulatory field. They can still get that from Congress, but it's going to be a tough sell on the backside of Austin. They focused on preemption to try to neutralize these state nil laws. I think when they go back to Congress, and it's going to be probably at or about the time that they finish up their work with this new constitution and put some flesh on the bones. That's going to be August of 2022. And then we're going to have the midterm elections coming up there. And and that's all relevant. We're we're going to talk about that. But I think when the Power Five re-engage with Congress, the athlete as student rather than athlete as employee issue is going to be a more prominent part of what the what the discussion is going to be in Congress. And I think what's going to happen in Congress and then what's happening in federal courts, and there's a case in particular I'm going to, I'm going to talk about in early 2022 and keep an eye on because it's relevant, I think. But that's where this battle is really being fought. And I think what happens in those two arenas is really going to inform what the self-help options are, the realistic self-help options are, and the likelihood that there could be a true collective bargaining option that is recognized under federal law. But those are ultimately going to be legal issues. And of course, yeah, there could be the wildcat strike. You could organize a informal union that's not protected by federal law, but it's a much less effective option because you don't have the protections of federal law. So we're going to talk about all that stuff, but I want to talk about this movie really because it illustrates, I think, how difficult it is to take these complex issues and reduce them to nuggets that are digestible in a way that is true to the overall business model. And when you look at how they constructed this movie, And then some of the false narratives that they actually reinforced that are NCAA Power Five friendly. And then the things that they simply didn't address and I don't think could address in that format. You couldn't do it in a documentary. You couldn't do it in a movie. You might not be able to do it in a single book. These are complicated issues. They're multi-layered. And so many of the moving parts are really standalone parts. They overlap, but you can't really focus on the intersection. You have to look at the whole of both of the circles. The intersection is where you want to land. But when that's your starting point, that small intersection of these big moving parts, I think it's very difficult to present that in a coherent way that captures the importance and complexity of the bigger issues in the background and the history. You cannot understand the business model of college sports in 2022 unless you understand the history of uh, college sports really going back to the early 1950s. It's essential And you have to understand the Walter Byers era. You have to understand the Board of Regents era. You have to understand the relationship between Power 5 football 
and the NCAA national office and the overarching NCAA bureaucracy. And then you have to understand the history of the concepts that the NCAA has used to defend its business model. And then you have to understand what's happened in Congress over the years and what's happened in federal litigation. The state legislative option is a new thing, but you have to understand that as well. If you don't have a good working understanding of all of those predicates, then what you get in a movie like this, when the star of the show, the, the hero of the show, is rattling through the talking points is nothing more than a bumper sticker. You get a bumper sticker that uh, oversimplifies and it sounds great and it looks good on the back of the car, but it's a gross oversimplification. And then when uh, a million other cars have the same bumper sticker, it loses its effect. And when I was talking about how Justice Gorsuch authored the opinion in Austin, how he framed the facts. I was talking about how he went through some of these statistics that you just rattle off, like Mark Emmert's $4 million salary, like the billion-dollar CBS Turner contract for March Madness, like ESPN's contract with the uh, CFP, like the conference revenues and the conference commissioner's salaries, all of those things that have some gotcha value, they sound nice when you're reeling them off. But those are context for the Austin opinion. When you just pull out those facts and then you run them through a Hollywood script and they just get plastered in the script like bumper stickers, I don't think they have that much value. And I think it's also important to point out that in the summer of 2020, after George Floyd was murdered, and we had several other similar incidents that just ripped at the soul of America's psyche. You had institutions, white institutions, like the NCAA, like the uh, Power Five conferences, like the Power Five institutions, falling all over themselves to put out the bumper sticker response, but it was all at this broad societal level and ironically didn't address the race-based exploitation that's occurring in the very business that they have control over. It was quite literally an institutional whitewash. They put a coat of whitewash on the ugly truths hiding behind the institution's relationship to the laborers in, in big time college sports. It was a golden opportunity to address that. And instead the NCAA and the Power Five and powerful people in the sports community, they took a desk dive and they covered it up with some sloganeering. And when I saw in, in the restart of college basketball on the backside of COVID, when I saw all these uniforms with these, these words on the back like uh, equality and justice and Black Lives Matter and all of the, the wallpaper that we used to cover up the truth of what was, what's was what been happening in college sports. I said, any opportunity that we had to have an honest discussion about this is gone because we had African-American athletes putting that drivel on their bodies and marching around in uh, front of crowds of people and on national TV. It reduced the seriousness of these issues to a hollow slogan with the institutional stamp of approval. And these middle school slogans were plastered on the bodies of the very people who should have been ripping them off and saying, I'm not going to parade around in this so that you can use this as cover for avoiding a real discussion on these issues, these very important issues. And I think that forums like this movie, the Hollywood Forum, does a similar disservice to the seriousness of these issues and the complexity of these issues. And there were some important points that were made. Some of those slogans are important, but in the final analysis, I'm not sure how effective they were in this Hollywood format through the Hollywood filter and all the competing interests that you have to consider when you're putting out a product that's designed to make money and sell tickets and put butts in the seats. <laughs> Apparently that hasn't really happened because the movie, for the most part, has tanked. They have only made a very small 
portion of what it actually costs to make the movie. And the reviews have been uh, lukewarm at best. That's putting it charitably. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about why I think that's the case. But I don't want to just trash the movie or denigrate it because I think that there probably were some good intentions here. And you had some interesting cameos. So you had uh, Jamel Hill making a cameo. And she's been an outspoken critic of some of the business model, all sports, not just college sports, but professional sports. And she looks at it through a, a race-based lens. And uh, Russell Wilson, who was actually an executive producer, he makes a little cameo. And you have uh, Mike Greenberg, a big ESPN guy, and then Stevie Levy, big ESPN guy. They are coy about how they characterize the broadcast media there. And it's not really ESPN, but that's really what they were representing there, the, the ESPN effect. But those cameos fell flat in, in my view. Let me just talk a little bit about how this movie was put together. And again, I'm going to try not to uh, get smart alecky. Oh, I might a little bit. Some of the reviews I read, Roger Ebert, who's old school reviewer, he really took out the, the carving knife on this one. And there were a couple of other reviews that I think were trying to give the movie credit for trying to make some movement, forward movement on the messaging about the exploitation of revenue-producing athletes, but some of the cornball soap opera-like devices that they used to try to generate and maintain interest really undermined the, the narratives. So in the opening scene, you've got this star quarterback in his hotel room with his roommate, his teammate who is a white guy, and they call him Bible Belt Sonny. And he's from Nebraska, middle-class middle, cr- middle kind of kid. Not a star athlete, not going to make a bunch of money, not going to make a living playing football. But they're goofing off in the hotel room, and then they do a little riff on Pulp Fiction and the, the back and forth between Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta with the Ezekiel Passage. And so we have Quentin... Tarantino and God being invoked as the inspiration for this scene. And the racial issues are are complicated. And even though there are revenue-producing athletes who are white, a disproportionate number of them are African-American and comparatively less well-off financially in terms of their worldly circumstances. But if you're writing this from a Hollywood standpoint, and you don't want to alienate any segment of your audience. You got to try to thread a little bit of a needle here or, or play both sides of a coin. And they do that in a number of different ways. And one is to have this black star athlete and then this white kind of role-playing athlete as a team. You know, they're a team here. It, it almost has a remember the Titans type feel to it. And this feel-good, come-together, ebony and ivory kind of thing I was waiting for. Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder to start bleeding into the background with ebony and ivory. It was just hokey. But it was a way to neutralize some of the impact of looking at this solely through the eyes of the high-value African-American athletes. And, and I'm going to talk about some other ways that they handle that issue going forward. But one of the ways that the star quarterback justifies his boycott of this game is that the lesser players, the role players, the guys who aren't going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft, they have value and that value's not being recognized. So he's doing it for them. So throughout the movie, it's these two guys navigating this storm that they have created and they're doing it together and they're side by side. And the movie begins and ends with that relationship as the centerpiece of how the plot moves. And apparently, this is hard to tease out because of how loose this plot is, but apparently these two guys are the only two guys that are part of the movement. They don't bring in anybody else. Apparently they don't discuss their intentions about this boycott with anybody else. And they just spring it on the entire college sports world, 73 hours before kickoff in the national championship game. And then you have some pretty obvious typecasting. You have the white coach who sort of understands where these guys are coming from, but when push comes to shove, 
He's going to go with self-interest in his $5 million a year salary. He's this guy who's all full of coach speak. You're not sure what to believe and what not to believe. And he gives a couple of epic speeches and that I'll pull some lines from. Because one of the things I'm going to do is give you some of my favorite lines from this movie. And there, there were some just incredibly awful, cringeworthy lines that you just say, oh my God, you want to know what the banter was in the room when they were writing those lines and then when they were putting those lines out for discussion once they made it into the script. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for those conversations, but uh, this was a two-hour film. If you had an actual copy of the uh, script, I don't think it's going to be very long. And when you look at the actual content, so much of it was delivered in these fiery speech formats that really were slogans, essentially. And so it almost felt to me like the writers made a list of all of the points they wanted to make and how much people got paid and the fraud of amateurism and the fraud of the student athlete and the rich coach going with self-interest when push comes to shove. And then the black hats, the NCAA and the NCAA's outside lawyer and the workers' compensation issue, and that ties into the student-athlete. It's like they had this list, and they were figuring out how they were going to get those bullet points into the script, and then how they were going to try to build a plot around them. And the primary device that they used were these speeches, like speeches that the star quarterback gives on TV. And then he's going room to room to make the same speeches to his teammates to try to get them to join in because a big part of the plot here is who's going to join the boycott and who's going to sit out. And you have all this fake drama that's built around that, but it's really speechifying. And then you have the coach giving the let's go and do it speech. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about, because there were some classic lines in, in that, classically bad lines in that. So he's given the, the motivational speech for the team to get them fired up to actually play the game. And then you have this NCAA outside lawyer slash fixer slash blackmailer. Some of the things that she does are just incredible. She'd be in jail if she did any one of these things, but she does these in, in the name of all the athletes who are benefiting from the system, who aren't star athletes, star football and star basketball players. But it's an African-American character played by Uzo Aduba. And she gives this fiery speech to the star quarterback and his white sidekick right before she tries to blackmail them, basically. But that was an important speech because she is laying out one of the cases that the NCAA lays out to support its crazy business models, corrupt business model. And that's all the things that they do for non-revenue athletes and female athletes. And and then there's a, another speech where the coach is doing a press conference to trash his star quarterback to try to undermine his credibility. The NCAA and this fixer lawyer are trying to destroy his credibility and they get the coach to go and, and make some disparaging comments in a press conference before the game. And then he gets a question from a reporter on whether big time college sports is like slavery. And, and his response is r right down the line of all the things we hear from the NCAA in Congress, you know, they're saying the same stuff in Congress. Again, the device there were these speechifying moments. And, in, and at the end of that, what you have are just a list of these bullet points of athletes' rights slogans and, and these themes that have been reduced to a, a bumper sticker-like idea. And, and then to add into the mix of the usual suspects in this kind of storyline, in the corruption of big-time college sports, you have this sketchy booster, and you have a couple of conference commissioner types, and you have an NCAA executive, but not the NCAA president. You have an NCAA executive who is conspiring with this lawyer to engage in all kinds of uh, covert operations to destroy this boycott movement, and it's take-no-prisoners kind of stuff. And then you have the coach's wife, who looks like a, more like a stripper or a hooker than a real coach's wife. And then you have her outside love interest. 
And it turns out that her love interest is a professor at uh, their school, the Missouri University of Missouri School. And your first question is, what the hell is a guy like this doing at the national championship game, yucking it up with all of the booster type people? And we learn at the very end of the movie in just a, a really impressive plot twist that <laughs> this guy taught a course in organized labor and labor relations. And both the star quarterback and his white sidekick took that course and they started talking to this professor about their feelings about big time college sports. And the three of them together came up with this plan. So this professor was the good guy. He's wearing the white hat, even though he's uh, sleeping with the coach's wife. Some of those side plots are just ridiculous. So I'm just going to walk you through the movie and, and, and then emphasize some of these, the speechifying and the themes that came out in those speeches. And I also should note that the producer, the main guy, the, the main director guy, he, he's a former stuntman turned director. And what we don't know, and I couldn't really tease this out looking behind the production here, and what they were really relying on, where they were getting their information, because there were some massive, massive gaps in the tape. And for example, we really don't understand what the NCAA's role is here. And in a single quote, they basically take on 40 years of post-Board of Regents history. It just doesn't work if you're going to have a thoughtful, meaningful, intelligent discussion about it the uh, real world in college sports and why these guys would be justified in exercising self-help. You have this series of scenes where LaMarcus and his white sidekick are going to talk to media people and LaMarcus arranges a, a film session with a news crew. He goes off on the NCAA and the business model and his coach, and then he goes through all of the facts, NCAA president, 4 million, Congress commissioners, 5 million, ESPN, CFP contract, 7 billion, blah, blah, blah. They're going to expand the CFP. My coach receives an annual salary of 5 million plus bonuses, including the national championship game. It's all about free labor. This is America and you're exploiting us and all this stuff. So, and then he makes his demands and he makes his big demands. And one is a non-revocable trust for Every Division One athlete, not quite sure what that was all about. Not a whole lot of flesh on the bones there. And then a player's disability fund for players who were injured. And then the NCAA officially recognizing a, a player's union and recognizing their right to engage in collective bargaining. And then he says, thank you. That's it. So it, that's the plan that was hatched just less than a, a day before. And he's got it all put together. And then we get the scene with the response team. So we're in this penthouse boardroom, really fancy boardroom. And there are a bunch of important people there. They're waiting for the coach to, to come in. And so you have, let's see, the coach. Then you have this NCAA executive who I think is described as being in charge of Division I championships. And that's interesting because guess what? The NCAA has absolutely no role in football championships at that level, and again, because of Board of Regents. But then you have the SEC conference commissioner, a kind of a redneck white guy who says a bunch of stupid redneck stuff, no typecasting there. Then you have the Big 12 commissioner, and he's a black guy who just happens to look a lot like Kevin Warren, the Big 10 conference commissioner. <laughs> then you have this CFP guy who is white, and then you have the woman. You have the black woman in a white dress, and she's lurking in the background. We don't know what her role is. She says absolutely nothing at this meeting. She's sitting in the background, and they would show her. They, the camera goes to her several times, and it's hard to tell what she's thinking or why she's even at the meeting. So they're looking at how they're going to deal with this issue. And the coach says, look, give me a few minutes with my player. I just need to talk to my player. I'll get his head right. And the coach believes that he's going to be able to save the day and the national championship game. And then the NCAA guy says, with as much seriousness as he, he can muster, we think the NCAA should take the reins on this because we are more of an impartial jury. We just want a great game. 
<laughs> Again, there's no discussion about what role NCAA actually has, what the role is in relationship to the CFP or the Power Five. There's no discussion about the Power Five. So basically, in that scene, the writers have dispensed with uh, 40 years of history, including the Board of Regents decision, the evolution of the Power Five, and the irrelevance of the NCAA in big-time college football. And they have absolutely nothing to do with the CFP. So if you're watching this movie... And you, you know nothing about the history of college sports and the relationship of all the moving parts in the business model. You have absolutely no idea what the relationship is among the CFP, the NCAA, and these conference commissioners. And interestingly, in that meeting, guess who's not there? The army of Power Five lawyers and NCAA lawyers, if they're going to be involved in strategizing. And ESPN's representatives, ESPN's got half a billion dollars on the line here. You think they don't have a seat at the table? And then you also don't have the university presidents. Where the hell are these presidents who are supposed to be in charge under the principle of institutional control for the conduct of intercollegiate athletics? And I guess I should also throw this in. They make some acknowledgement that this is in the COVID era, but you don't see a single person wearing a mask. There's not a single person wearing a mask in, in that conference room. Imagine what that scene looks like with people talking <laughs> through masks. Oh, my gosh. Let's see. Who else wasn't at that? Oh, yeah. The corporate partners. Snickers is supposedly the big corporate partner for this game, but you can bet your bottom dollar that if something like this happened, You've got representatives from all of the money players demanding a seat at the table and making their, their views known. And then closing out that scene, you have the NCAA guy making the you know usual NCAA argument that this isn't about these star athletes. This is about the hundreds of thousands of athletes in the 24 men's and women's sports that are going to suffer and all that's going to disappear. The stakes are way bigger than one game. What's at risk here is the future of college sports and the future of these opportunities for these hundreds of thousands of athletes. And then we've got the stump speech where LaMarcus and his friend, his, his white buddy, are going around to the athletes' rooms and you'll have six or, or eight athletes in a room taking in the speech and it's just powerful. And these guys are invoking Upton Sinclair and, and MLK Jr. indirectly and God quite directly. God makes an appearance there. So we're getting some powerful stuff here. And you see the uh, athletes in the room starting to nod their heads and, oh, yeah, yeah, now. We, we never thought about these issues before, but now we're hearing it right now from you, LaMarcus. It all makes sense. It's all coming into place. And that's another false narrative. These guys, I think, have a very sophisticated understanding of this business model. And they were presented as ignorant, really, of, of the whole business model. And they can only get the message from the, their savior, LaMarcus James. So uh, we go through that and, and then in that series of clips where they're in all these rooms, LaMarcus is quoting scripture and, and he says, God says, I am here and there is nothing to fear. So he's trying to inspire these guys to action. And then uh, the ne very next scene, again, we just do this pivot and we're right back in the hotel room with the coach's wife and this professor. And, and this time she's uh, smoking a joint. So we, we got the coach's wife, the stripper hooker wife, smoking pot with the college professor. You just can't make this stuff up. And then we go from that to this creepy booster hitting on a male waiter. So we've learned that the, the uh, booster is gay. That's, a, that's really important to know in this plot. And then we get our first introduction to the black NCAA lawyer. And she speaks. She can speak. We figure that out. And then we learn that she is more than just a lawyer. She, she's a fixer. And she's going to take these guys down. She is take no prisoners. And she's going to kick some ass and take some names in the name of amateurism. So the NCAA guy says, I pay you for options. What are they? And then this woman says, I see only two. One give them what they want, or two, we savage them. And then she goes into how 
she has accessed some of LaMarcus's medical records, and there's a medical record, a secret medical record, that shows that he has all kinds of knee issues that have not been disclosed, and she's going to use that as leverage to basically blackmail LaMarcus into backing down, because if that information's made public, his NFL career is over. Forget FERPA. Forget HIPAA. Forget federal blackmail laws. She is just going to savage this guy. There's not going to be any looking back. And she wants the coach to be the messenger there. And then, as if we haven't had enough already, we are back to the hotel. And the wife has gone back to her room. And she's packed her bags. And she is leaving. And the coach comes in. And he's begging her not to go. And she says this. And this is an instant classic. She says, I need to find myself again. I need some me time. So this has been a bad weekend for, for the coach here. And then uh, we cut to a scene where he's giving the team a, a speech in a ballroom at the hotel. And he's trying to convince them to, to play. And he's trying to explain to them the reasons why they should play. And he talks about how wonderful life is for them and how they're sitting on the top of a mountain and they have this fleeting moment and it's going to be a fleeting moment because life is a pain in the ass. And he's talking to them about his bad luck and the fact that his wife hates him and that she just left him and that he can't get it up without that little blue pill and that his best buddy just died of cancer. And then he says, 40 years ago, I was you. He says, the only thing in life that means a damn to me. And then he points his finger and kind of moves it around the audience there to the players. And he says, you men. And then he has tears welling up. And then he says, look, money doesn't matter. Money is shit. There's no glory in money. And then he plays the Band of Brothers card. And he says, you want to give all that up? And then he says, trust me, things are going to change. I promise you, things are going to change. But don't rob yourself of your destiny. Glory is yours. Glory is ours. Take it. You're expecting the guys to just run through that brick wall. But there's tepid clapping, and hard to tell how that was received. And then, and then the coach does his press conference where he turns on LaMarcus, and he's telling the world about his bad knee and the fact that DeMarcus lied to them about that. And then we have another speech to try to get in all these important bumper sticker slogans. So he dumps on his quarterback and, and the story's out. And you have this lawyer, this NCAA fixer lawyer who's at the press conference and she's orchestrating the, the presser. And then a reporter asks the coach, do you think this is an example of a modern day slave trade? And the coach says, I'm sorry, I guess I don't understand that question. And then the reporter says, we're like inspecting a slave's teeth to determine the price. He was referring to the fact that the coach had said that when LaMarcus goes to uh, the draft combine, they're going to do a thorough physical and they're going to see all the problems in his knee. And so the reporter saying, what, are these guys like slaves on the auction block being sized up and, and priced up? And the coach says, well, if you think getting a free top-tier education or four years of first-class accommodations and nutrition, not to mention a sizable living stipend, and then toss in a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to play in a national title game, if we're calling that the slave trade, then I'd love to be a slave. The fixer, she gives the kind of the cut sign, like we're done here. And, and she gets him off stage, and then that goes viral, and all of a sudden the, the coach is uh, persona non grata. And then we get a peek uh, at how nuanced and layered the NCAA's fixer lawyer really is because she gets a meeting with LaMarcus. She kind of fools them into meeting with her in a hotel room, LaMarcus and, and his sidekick. She gives them the speech, you don't think I know what this is all about, and I suffered too, and I get it, I understand, and all this stuff. And then she makes this impassioned speech about the life-altering experience she had as a college athlete. She was in a track uh, athlete. She's talking about the hundreds of thousands of athletes and the, the women's athletes and the non-revenue athletes and the $3.6 billion in aid that goes to all of these athletes, not just the star athletes in football and men's basketball. And that figure came up a few times. It's $3.6 billion in scholarship money that comes from the NCAA. And that is an absolute false statement. The NCAA doesn't provide a single penny 
of athletics scholarship money. Not one. But more importantly, what she is really talking about there, or, or, or not talking about, I guess, more accurately, is the fact that all these, these scholarships, and she was at a Division I school. She, in her character story, she went to Duke, my alma mater, and received a full athletic scholarship. But at these Power Five schools, under Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, all this revenue from football and men's basketball specifically targeted to downstream beneficiaries. And she's a black non-revenue producing athlete, but she's in the minority because the overwhelming majority of recipients of that regressive transfer of wealth are white athletes. And that theme is nowhere in the plot. And that's one of the most important things that I think people need to understand about the business model. If you're going to have an honest discussion at the values level about the impact and the importance of black revenue producing athletes to the business model, because by definition, they are underwriting the entire athletics departments at Power Five schools, and that is a direct product of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and his articulation of that in his 2006 State of the Association speech. That's nowhere. And again, it's one of these ways that the Hollywood presentation of these slogans just grossly oversimplifies these relationships and the true dynamics in the business model. And then there's a scene, another boardroom scene, where the SEC commissioner is saying, I'm just tired of all this crap. You guys are screwing it up, you NCAA people. We'll have our own football tournament. And then she launches into some diatribe against him about how they'd be in breach of all these contracts. Oh, and we've been doing some digging on you, and we know that you've been using your SEC money, your conference money, to hire hookers and do all this kind of Ill illegal stuff. And then she turns around and presents Plan B in the smear attempt of Lamarcus. And it is a fight that he was involved in with his brother, his wayward brother, back years ago. And apparently they beat up some guy or his brother actually beat up some guy and LaMarcus was trying to cover for him. But the guy was permanently disabled and the story never made it in the media because a bunch of boosters came in and, and hired lawyers and they got a non-disclosure and paid off the family and that this NCAA fixer lawyer was going to make all that public and it was going to ruin his reputation and he might even go to jail. So that was her go-to move after beating down this SEC guy for hiring hookers with conference money. And we've had a couple more of these timeline entries. So we're down to, to game day. And through this blackmail attempt, there's some suggestion that Marcus might actually play. And so he's in the hotel room with his sidekick, Sonny, the white guy. And they're talking and they're going to follow through on the boycott. They're sitting it out. And even if they're the only two that are sitting it out. They're doing it together, and they are the righteous martyrs for college athletes. And, and there you have it. So I would say in the final analysis, they put some interesting bumper stickers on the back of the car, and maybe some people learned some things about the business model that they didn't know before. But again, they're really bumper stickers that are out of context and are not connected in a way that explains the history and the depths of the collusion among powerful insiders. There's no discussion about the campaign in Congress. There's no discussion about what was happening in federal courts. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the, the timing of this film, I think that Filming ended on June 11th of 2021, so that's 10 days before Austin. And before June 30th, when Mark Emmert waved the white flag on name, image, and likeness and dumped all his null garbage at the feet of the institutions. I don't know if they came back and tried to fill in any of those gaps, but there is zero reference to any of the uh, things that have happened in federal litigation, O'Bannon, Austin, or any other case. There's nothing about what uh, the NCAA tried to pull off in, in Congress. So you have a very narrow lens and uh, a very small cast of characters that they used as devices to get these talking points out. I guess where I land with this film, and the same has been true with some of these documentaries that, that have come out over the last few years. You know, Taylor Branch did a documentary, and there were, were a couple of others. There was one on the criminal cases, the basketball-related criminal cases. In those mediums, you have to take some shortcuts. And if you're going to do a documentary that's an hour, 15 minutes, or a Hollywood movie, 
fictional movie that's uh, over two hours. There's going to be a lot on the cutting room floor, and there's going to be a lot that doesn't even make it into the discussion. So the, the limitations outweigh the benefits in many cases. And that was my takeaway with this film. I'm not sure that it did as much good as potential harm in terms of generating interest. Maybe a provocative documentary leads people to want to explore further and they want to do some reading and, and research and poke around a little bit and develop a deeper understanding of the issues. I don't think this movie accomplished that. And it sort of compromised across all levels. And so it wasn't uh, very effective at delivering a compelling social message. I think that the plot devices that they used to try to force those slogans into the debate made it uh, really silly to a lot of people. And that came across in a lot of these reviews and particularly this storyline with the uh, stripper hooker coach's wife and this professor. <laughs> it didn't make any sense at all. And that really drew down on the credibility of the film. So let's see, I think on IMDb, it was like a 5.5 Rotten Tomatoes. It was, I don't know, around about 50%. That suggests to me, along with a very small audience that's heard it, I think it's only grossed I don't know, $600,000. That's not a lot of tickets. That's not a lot of people. And I haven't looked at the demographics of, of who's actually watching the movie, but I don't see it having much impact. But it was fun to talk about, particularly 73 hours before the real CFP National Championship game. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I'm going to start taking a look here in conjunction with an evaluation of this Constitution Committee. I'm going to be talking in more detail about some of these labor issues. And they're very complicated. And labor laws are very complicated in the way that they relate to each other. But there's a case pending now in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. It's a federal case. It was filed in 2019 by a group of athletes. And I think the lead plaintiff played football at Villanova. And they are making a claim for wages under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And it's a whole different a statutory scheme from what the Northwestern players tried to do in 2014 through the NLRB. But some of the issues are similar, and the central focus, factual focus, is whether or not these athletes are employees. And they're using the work-study program as the counterweight to the athlete's true role in their relationship with these institutions, and saying that what they do is more employment-like than what the work-study students do. And there's some very interesting aspects about that case, particularly in terms of the plaintiff class and the schools that they represent, because you don't have really heavy-hitting schools. And I, I was rooting around in the electronic files the other day because a very interesting thing happened. So in terms of the pacing of the litigation, you have the complaint and then very quickly after the complaint was filed, you had the NCAA and all these schools doing what they always do, and that is file a motion to dismiss. And their primary defense is that these athletes aren't employees. They are students, primarily students. And you're back to that same basic threshold question, but the standard's different. The criteria are a little bit different under the Fair Labor Standards Act than, than under the NLRB. And you have a, a different goal here, and they're looking at, at whether they're entitled to hourly payment and overtime payment. It's a wage law. But again, the threshold question is, are you performing work? Are you an employee? And the NCAA and the schools filed uh, a motion to dismiss or motions to dismiss on the grounds that these athletes are not employees. And there was extensive briefing on that. And this case is being heard by a uh, judge, I think his name's Pavoda, and he's an old guy. He's, I think he's 86 years old. He's a retired judge, but he got assigned this case and he has a background in, in labor law. But some interesting things have happened just in the last couple of weeks in that case that may accelerate the case through the judicial process, the federal judicial process, and upstream, potentially, to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the judge looked at these motions to dismiss, and in large part, he denied them. And then the NCAA and one of the groups of defendants asked the court to basically stop the proceedings in the district court so that they could file what's called an interlocutory appeal and it's a, an appeal that's permitted before there's a final judgment. Normally, in order to appeal, there has to be a truly final judgment in a case. But 
under this interlocutory appeal process, you can get an issue to an appellate court before the uh, case below has been fully resolved. And the court granted that motion. I think that he granted the motion on the 22nd, and th then he put out an order on the 28th of December, a couple weeks ago. And the, the question, as he posed it for the Third Circuit, so Pennsylvania's in the Third Circuit, is whether NCAA Division I student-athletes can be employees of the colleges and universities they attend for purpose of the Fair Labor Standards Act solely by virtue of their participation in interscholastic athletics. I just find that interesting. Interlocutory appeals are very rare, and courts rarely grant them. And What's interesting about this case is that the judge, he denied the motions to dismiss. And then after the Austin decision came out on June 21st of 2021, he directed both parties to file briefs on what effect, if any, that decision had on the issues in the case. Obviously, the NCAA said it had no impact and they, they emphasized the limited nature of that ruling. And then, of course, the plaintiffs said, yeah, this is a, a clear signal by the Supreme Court that these kinds of limitations, these kinds of restrictions on athletes' rights are not being looked kindly upon by the United States Supreme Court. But what I found particularly interesting and, and a little concerning, quite frankly, about the fact that the order was granted and the way that the court framed the certified question is it's being rolled up essentially as a question of law. But these analyses in the employment setting, whether it's under the NLRB or the FLSA, is really fact-intensive. And you have to look at these things on a case-by-case -case basis, and it's really difficult to just categorically rule out uh, a class of workers, particularly since there really is no definition of student-athlete. It's whatever the NCAA says it is, and it's based on amateurism-based compensation limits that have changed all the time. So these laws, both NLRB and the FLSA, they have categories of people or groups that are exempt from those laws. So those laws don't apply to certain types of workers, but athletes aren't included in that. And that's a question for Congress. If, if, if there's going to be a categorical exemption of any athlete who's playing a varsity sport, a, a university-sponsored sport, that that person cannot be deemed an employee in his capacity as an athlete, then that's a question for Congress. But under existing law, in order to make that determination, there has to be this intensive fact-based analysis. So how can the court send that up as a question of law? It just doesn't make sense to me intuitively. It'll be real interesting to see what the Third Circuit says about that. One of the important takeaways from the Austin decision, and again, this is in a much different context, and this is in the antitrust analysis and what test you apply, and whether you are going to subject the NCAA to antitrust scrutiny and then the full rule of reason, which is a totality of the circumstances fact-based inquiry, not unlike the inquiry that occurs with these putative employees on the labor side. But what the court said in Austin was, absent a categorical exemption from Congress, which they can go get and they will try to go get, and they tried that in 2020, absent a congressional exemption from this fact-intensive analysis, you are subject to it because you are not above the law. You are not special. I think that's the ultimate takeaway that, you know, under the statutory antitrust structure, there's no exemption for college athletes or for the NCAA or for the Power Five or any institutions. So we're just going to apply standard antitrust principles. And under those principles, you have to justify your compensation limits under the rule of reason analysis. And it would seem that if the court in this case in Pennsylvania were concerned about the impact of Austin, that that takeaway would be this overarching theme in deciding how to handle this case, whether to try to cut it off with a motion to dismiss or maybe later a motion for summary judgment, some kind of pretrial motion that is dispositive of the issues. But this seems to be a factual issue that's being rolled up as a legal question, and it doesn't make sense to me. So I'm going to be paying close attention to this, and I'm going to start talking more about this Johnson case. But back to the issues that were raised in this movie, National champions. I think it's important to understand that these are complicated issues that are going to require a lot of thought, 
a lot of uh, coordination, a lot of foundation laying, and it's not something that's going to happen in a single event. It's going to be a process, and it's going to be informed by what is happening in federal courts and in Congress. So we'll we'll talk some more about that here soon. So with that, I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.